Hey y'all, and welcome back to another episode of In Killing Color. This is episode number 26, and today we're going to throw it back because I love talking throwback history stories. Today, we're going to talk about a lady named Hannah Mary Tabs. Now, I'm not sure if you know who that is, and the majority of you probably should not know who that is. Being as though this took place in the 1800s, but by the end of the episode, you will know exactly who she is and what type of time Hannah was on. Let's get to it. These are their stories. On the freezing morning of February 17, 1887, a carpenter was walking by an ice pond when he noticed a parcel wrapped in brown paper marked handle with care. Inside, he found a male torso and could not tell what race he was. The limbs and the head were nowhere around. This terrified everybody in the surrounding communities because they had never had anything like that happen around there. And from what they could tell, a brutal homicide had taken place. And at the very minimum or maximum, obviously somebody had been dismembered. The head had been severed at the fourth vertebrae. One arm had been chopped off at the joint and the other had been cruelly cut through the shoulder and the midsection had been sawed away so that the distended bowels protruded. Now, for those of you like me that appreciate horror and gore, you already know and you're picturing in your mind what that looks like. I am too. And it was not, it was a no bueno. Now, they definitely couldn't tell the sex of the victim, but... Well, I'm sorry, they could tell the sex of the victim, but his race was not so very easily determined. Some people thought that maybe he could have been Asian, while the others thought maybe he could have been like Spanish or Italian or something like that. But the fact that they couldn't tell whether the torso belonged to a white man or not changed the game and how they would figure out who would ultimately be responsible. So you already know the direction of this story. It's heavy on race because this was 1887, so... You already know what type of time everybody is going to be on in this story. But in an era without our wonderful, amazing forensic science that we now have, the investigators from Berks County and those from Philadelphia managed to identify two suspects, a black Southern migrant named Hannah Mary Tabbs and a young mixed mulatto is what they called him, a mulatto man named George Wilson. Now, her trial did last for months, and the outcome was one that shocked lots of people and had everybody kind of like, girl, what? Oh, okay. They dubbed Hannah a murderess. And that's a, a I, I, I hate to say that, but I love that word, murderess. It sounds better than, you're a murderer. Murderess. It sounds so seductive in a way. You know what I'm saying? Hannah would be Hannah in this case was on front page news for months. And the main reason why it was like front page news was because there was like such forbidden subjects like adultery, which we'll get into later, illicit sex, domestic violence and literal violence. Now, let's get into Hannah's history. So Hannah Mary Tapps was born Hannah Ann Smith at or around 1854. Um, she listed her birthplace as Virginia. 
But she told authorities she was from Richmond, but there was really no trace of her in the Virginia Historical Society and other archives. Her Civil War widow's pension file from the National Archives in Washington, D.C. detailed several affidavits saying that they knew she was married and they saw her marriage certificate from 1874 and it had her signature, but they still couldn't tell like where she was from. So after some digging, a couple researchers found out that she was indeed from Maryland. And at that time, Maryland was a slave state, but they did have quite a few um, free black people. So it was kind of hard to tell whether, you know, Hannah was actually born enslaved or if she was born free. That's a fact that we will never actually know. However, you know, prior to her getting to Philly, she and her niece. Now, she called her her niece, but a lot of historians figured out that it was probably more than likely her daughter. The baby was of mixed race, so she was more than likely a product of something less than opulent. And you know exactly what I mean. They made their way to Baltimore, and that's where she eventually met her husband, John Tabbs. He was an older, established man. And when I say older, it's giving at least 10, 15 years older than her. At the time, she was around 15 to 20, because again, we don't really know how old she was or when she was born. And, you know, that does sound pretty like scandalous. Like, oh my gosh, she was only 15 and he was 10, 12, 15 years older than her. But back then it was like, almost like, child, you gotta... You got to get in where you fit in. You know what I'm saying? Because at that time, getting married for a black woman signified that you were somebody. You were worth something. And that just was the goal, like, which is obviously different now because it's like, girl, I don't need to be married. Uh, although I can't relate because I am married. But back then it was like, if you're married, you're more respected. And once they got married, the two then headed towards Philly, and that's where all the drama began. They get there, they settle in, several years pass, and then that's when she meets a man. His name is George Wilson, Wilson, and he was 18 years old. Now, Hannah was, you know, a caretaker at home. She kept the house and took care of their niece, which we already know is her daughter, her niece. But... Throughout that time, Hannah was creating quite a reputation for herself. She was known for violent acts against her very own black community. And at that point, she didn't even get a police record until she was accused of murder. She would go around and beat people up and dare them to do something about it. She was demanding her respect from people. And Hannah was not about the games. Okay, she was not the one, two or the three for the bullshit. Now, she had a reputation of violence and she also used a lot of aliases and false identities. So it was very hard for a lot of people to catch up with her to kind of figure out, girl, Hannah, what are you doing? But listen, Hannah was letting the girls know, (laughs) try Jesus, don't try me. okay? and the drama wasn't even just for strangers. It included her family and her husband. (laughs) John was suffering. okay? John was probably suffering in silence. That's a damn shame. Now, in that area, Hannah was one of the black women that a lot of people hadn't encountered before. She knew how to like fake the funk and give off a respectable wife vibe. But she also knew how to manipulate, threaten and brutalize people to get what she wanted, whether she was feared, respected or if it was to engage in a risque affair. Now, we know back then, like people was doing what they was doing. 
But to be quite honest, more than likely, it was mostly the men folk who was doing that. So for Hannah to be a young black woman out here like, what's up, big dog, was very scandalous. <laughs> scandalous indeed, child. So when Hannah was 37 years old, she became, she became involved in an affair with a 24-year-old mixed-race man named Wakefield Gaines. He was somebody that could pass. And now let me stop for a second for those who are listening who don't know what the word pass means. So in the black community, when somebody can pass, they are usually very, very light-skinned or fair-skinned. They have a different grain of hair. They have features that allow them to blend in amongst the white population without being quote unquote detected. And it happened a lot. That's a whole nother subject that we will not be getting into ever, but he could pass. So after a while of them messing around or whatever, Tabs <laughs> said to Gaines, look, I'm gonna kill you because she saw him talking to a neighborhood girl. So two weeks later, Jenny Cannon, which was Wakefield Gaines' sister, she reported him missing. And the shady part about all that is, of course, there was a crime that was committed, but the crime was actually committed at Hannah's own home with her husband and her, quote, niece. Now, nobody really knows why her husband, John, wasn't at home the day that this happened and how everybody just came to be like just chilling at their house, like, let's watch the game, whatever. And it's just kind of weird. So when the police questioned um, John, he had an airtight alibi. They didn't say what the alibi was, but they said it was airtight. However, Hannah, she couldn't account for her whereabouts for the day. So she got arrested. And then people would start coming forward being like, oh, yeah, Hannah, girl, Hannah been, she been coming for me for months and I don't get it. So everybody was on that snitch shit because Hannah was a menace and they was tired of her shit. <laughs> Now, Gaines' mutilated torso was discovered by was discovered in the Colonel Williams B. Mann Ice Pond on February 17, 1997, in Eddington, Pennsylvania, by a man named Silas Hibbs. The Philadelphia police investigators named Frank Geyer, James Tate, Thomas Crawford, and Peter Miller determined that Hannah, with the help of her 18-year-old accomplice George Wilson, were the ones that murdered Wakefield Gaines. During this time, confessions were usually beaten out of suspects, male and female. And for black female suspect, threats of sexual violence were also thrown into the mix, which I'm 100% not surprised to hear. At one point, there was a case of a black woman accused of murdering a white man in the early 20th century. And the detectives came in, they were fully masked, but their eyes were still open. And the lady said that she could see their eyes and that they were like looking her over like with the, yeah, we about to get you look, you know, you know what I'm saying? So now in Hannah's case, um, once they saw her, it did show signs of her being abused while she was in custody. She had a black eye that she kind of had beforehand, but it just came more pronounced once she was arrested. Some of her clothes were torn and she had been moved from her cell in the middle of the night. Now, after that night, Tabs made a, quote, confession where she implicated George Wilson. And George also claimed to have been victimized while he was in police custody. And to me, none of that is surprising. Because this was in 1887 and the shit is still happening here in 2020. 
23. And we see it every single solitary day. Now, Tabs' confession kind of goes something like this. So she says that on the morning of February 16th, 1887, George came to her house, which was at 1642 Richard Street in Philadelphia. Now, if it's early, Hannah said that Wakefield Gaines was already at the house reading the newspaper. So in my mind, it's like, was Wakefield sleeping over? Where the fuck was John? Where the fuck was the kids? Hannah, how you having a, a, a man over with his feet kicked up on the newspaper in the morning and you invited homeboy over? <laughs> she was wild. She then said that Wilson and Gaines got into an argument and Gaines jumped out of his chair and struck Wilson in the face. Now, the two started fighting and Wilson hit Gaines over the head with the chair. And then once Gaines fell to the floor, Wilson kept hitting him multiple times with the chair. Bam, 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 bam. And then he took the body and dragged it into the cellar. Now, Tab said that Wilson was the one that took off Gaines' clothes, got a butcher's cleaver, and dismembered him. She said that Gaines then took the clothing and his torso, boarded the 6.30 p.m. train, went to Eddington, where he threw the body over into the water. Wilson did confess to the crime, but he did say that Hannah was actually the one who did the dismemberment. He said that, yes, we both got on the train, but I didn't throw his body into the river. He said that Hannah did that. Now, the police, the Philly police, specifically Frank Geyer, said that they took George to the river where he said that he had threw the body over, but they've never found the body parts. And still, to this day, They've still never found the body parts. So, Philadelphia District Attorney George Graham prosecuted the case against Hannah Mary Tabbs and George Wilson. Now, the coroner's physician named Dr. Henry F. Fromad shocked the packed courtroom when he testified that Wakefield Games was alive during his dismemberment. Now, you know, I'm not I'm not fully versed in forensics or anything like that. But how can you tell that he was alive? Was it more so like blood flow to the limbs, the various states of decomposition? I'm not sure. But for him to be alive where his head was cut off, arms, stomach, I'm sure somebody heard that. Because there's no way nobody heard a man screaming at the top of his lungs, all whilst being decapitated. Now... Here's the part where everybody was like, what the fuck? Hannah was convicted of being just an accessory to murder. Judge Harris sentenced her to only two years in prison. Two. Now, George Wilson was convicted of the actual murder. And he was sentenced to 12 years in the Eastern State Penitentiary. So Hannah got two and George got 12. I'm sure his family was not too pleased, none too pleased about that. Now, in an era where black women's bodies were actually never their own and were still considered more so of property, there was all kind of reasons for, you know, that Hannah being like feared and people were scared of her was a good thing because it kind of kept her like more so safe from all types of shit. But 
Her case also opened a window into the impact of biased justice and its role in urban crime that is still very much at play today. So let me just quickly say something about that. So it's like kind of like how I handle my social media. I talk about black cases that are rarely reported on or sometimes nobody knows anything about. It'd be the same cases that we have, but let this case be of somebody else of another race. You're going to hear about it from every fucking news outlet for weeks, months, years, decades after it happened. But with black women and black men, you don't hear about it. You might see a little blurb here or there, but you don't get Lifetime movie network channels. You don't get documentaries. You don't get all that shit. You just get a quick little bump. This will happen. Yeah. Now, if Hannah and George had an unalived a black man, that case would never have made it to historical crime chronicles like Hannah's has. Because the fact of the matter is, they didn't know that jo- what's his name? I'm tripping. They didn't know that Wakefield was not white. So they was prosecuting her, doing whatever they had to do under the assumption that he was a white male, not knowing that he was a mixed race guy. So if they had to know he was mixed race prior to all that back in 1887, I'm going to bet money that that case would have been like pew, thrown out. That's just me. You don't have to like what I said, but I said it. Okay, I said it. Now, despite the numerous assaults she did commit within the black community, like I said earlier, she didn't even have a record. So she was going around fucking people up with no consequence. And it wasn't until the authorities believed that her victim was a white male is when she actually got in trouble. And that same nuance plays very heavily to this day, every fucking day. That at those dynamics spotlight the difference between the black community and adequate police protection. We talk about this often. And I'm going to keep talking about it because there's a difference. And we see that now that we have people bringing these no these news stories to the forefront. We hear it. We see it. We know the difference. And the shit is bullshit. That is bullshit. Now, both Hannah and the man she was implicated in the murder endured a very, very rough coercion and a lengthy interrogation process while they were in custody. And that also plays along the lines of how black suspects were often usually beaten into false confessions because, hey, got to blame somebody. Why not blame the little black girl? I mean, she she it was at her house. So fuck it. She did it. What if John had to did it? What if John was lying? Did nobody know John said he had an airtight alibi, but the fact of the matter is John could have been lying. John could have been at the house too. He probably could have been like walked up in them having a little breakfast, a little coffee. My man's had his feet kicked up on the table. Wakefield was over in the corner. He could have been like, fuck going on in here. And could have been like, oh, Wakefield, you the one. I'm going to kill you and I'm going to leave. But I'm going to tell everybody I wasn't there. We don't know. We do not know. Now, without question, Hannah Mary Tabs was out of pocket and she was a wild girl. She did 
just some wild shit to grant herself pleasure because then it wasn't about self-pleasure. It was about making everybody else happy and making everybody else comfortable. And this was during a time when the prevailing message was that black women deserve anything but self-pleasure and self-autonomy. I'm going to always advocate for black women to be able to do what they want, feel what they want, because not only am I a black woman, but because it's fucking appropriate and it makes the fuck sense. <laughs> like, I, I don't see how anybody can be like, oh, no. girl, the fucking Constitution says that we're three fourths of a person, not a whole, not a half, three fourths. And that shit is still on there. Still on there. And we've had a black president. Ooh, child, please get me off my soapbox today. But this story was very interesting to me because the news, like sensationalism about all of this didn't even come about till there was a lady who was a um, Harvard professor and she decided to dive into this and she wrote a book about it. And then that's when everything just started coming to light about Hannah Mary Tabs. And had I not been like into true crime or anything, I never would have heard about her. And it's just kind of like, well, shit, it was getting busy back then. I ain't know nothing about that. Nobody knew nothing about that. I bet you I could, you could raise your hand and tell me y'all ain't heard nothing about that. If I had to say it this, you wouldn't have known nothing about it. It's not like it's going to change your life or anything like that. But the fact of the matter is, you know about a crime that was committed back in the 1800s. And the only reason they prosecuted it is because they couldn't tell if the body was a white man or not. Sound like some bullshit to me, ain't it? Y'all, it is Black History Month, so I will be talking about lots of things for this month. However, I would like for you to make sure that if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you go to the collection called In Everything. And In Killing Color has been featured there because we're amazing. We are there with lots of other amazing, amazing podcasts. And if you have time, you can go there, listen, share, like, all that stuff, support because I greatly appreciate it. Thank y'all for tuning in. I have some really good stuff coming next week because I really do. It's going to be great. So, thank you. I'll talk to y'all next time. Make sure y'all follow me on all social media in Killing Color. Bye. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.